program is brought to you by UCL, London's global university. I'm going to move very swiftly because it's a huge topic to cover in half an hour. I also have a slightly uh, two days ago set of slides here uh, because of various reasons they needed to adapt the slides and so I'll skip across some as I go. But what I'm going to talk about, if I can get to operate all this, is, uh, and that's why you can see the slides are slightly across so we can have this figure here in the, in the screen. So what is homophobia, to try and uh, put some definition around it? Uh, have we always had it? And what form does it take? And, and then what its results are? And I'm going to be talking from a particular aspect a psychiatric aspect to some degree, because psychiatrists have been the greatest sinners in some ways in this area. And I'm going to try and end on, is it a great mistake if I get there, if I uh, have time to. Who's this, first of all? Yeah, I, I'm sure all of you know. I mean, it was on the uh, UCL website. Alan Turing was uh, a, a very famous code breaker in Bletchley Park during the war. He's probably one of the, arguably, one of the originators of the digital computer. He died by taking poison at the age of 50, uh, 41, in 1954. And the reason he did, because he was horrified by the changes in his body that were occurring when he took estrogens. He was forced by the courts to take estrogens for his homosexuality after uh, being found guilty of what was then called gross indecency. Um, that reflects not only his tragedy, but the tragedy of using estrogen therapy for what was thought to be a hormonal problem. Uh, an apology actually was given by the British government last year. So who are these couples and, and what do they have in common? I'm sure you recognize this. That's right, and these? Well, they're Matthew, uh, Matthew Broderick and the, the, what they have in common is their proud parents. The trouble is that uh, they're proud parents of surrogate children, surrogate babies. Here, the news reporting was interesting, curious, here, horrified and disapproving. Now, many people said, well, it was nothing to do with having two fathers. It was merely that Elton John was 60-something. Uh, but you don't need to cover up Hello! magazine across many bookshops in America to deal with ageism. I think there may have been another reason behind this. So what is homophobia? It's pretty easy to define. Prejudice, stigma, discrimination against lesbian, gay, and bisexual, and transgender people. I include there, I'm not going to talk about transgender people very much, but the same moral outrage uh, is included. It's the same sort of stigma. And what's unusual about homophobia is it can come right into the family in a way that's much more common than other isms. Racism can do, but uh, this one does. I saw a young man uh, in my clinic not that long ago who told his mother that he was gay, she immediately rushed upstairs and had a vomiting spell and then disappeared for the weekend. So you can imagine what kind of internalized sense of shame was involved for him. So going on, what is it? As a psychiatrist, the term phobia is silly. Is it really a phobia? Because a phobia is an irrational fear of a, an object like a pigeon or, a, or an underground train that leads to avoidance. Um, but why phobia arose, it was because a psychologist back in the 70s, in this book, I love this title, Society and the Healthy Homosexual, it sort of begs the question of what an unhealthy homosexual is, but 
1972, he wrote about homophobia, and it was, it was adopted to have this irrational fear. And of course, it implied, and it came from a precursor term, that just perhaps the discriminator was fearful of their own same-sex responsiveness. And I'm going to come back to this idea, because this has been hovering around a lot in this field. Homosexual panic was also used, and unfortunately it was used as a defense. Some heterosexual men who had battered or even murdered gay men, this is usually male in these contexts, used it as a legal defense that the, the gay man had made some implied move, sexual move, and that he lost control. And many men got off uh, severe assault charges and murder charges on this defense. Uh, it was dropped by, really, by the late 80s. A better term, really, is heterosexism. I think heterosexism is good because it, it, it brings us this institutional idea of the heterosexist assumption that people are heterosexual to prove otherwise. And I'm going to come back to the idea that there may be some truth in homoerotophobia. So, has it been with us? Well, um, probably not, because homosexuality itself was only coined in the late 19th century. It was a term that arose uh, from the sexology field, which I'll come to in a minute. But before that, same-sex behavior was just classified as a kind of debauched general sin. I mean, obviously the penalties were quite severe at times, but it wasn't seen as a thing as how we see it today. And um, most, most religions, we only have to see the Anglican communities uh, anguish over uh, gay and lesbian priests and bishops to see that this is still with us. And that perpetuates a stigma in society. But actually, if you look back historically, very few societies have tolerated homosexuality. Much is said about ancient Greece and Rome, but they were very circumscribed conditions under which it would be seen as acceptable or at least or very rarely positive. One of the most extreme examples I want to touch on of discrimination arose in the 20th century, and it was one that was not really ascribed much credence until the last two decades. This is the Nazis' system and uh, their incredible bureaucracy in which they called, I love this cryptic, distinguishing marks for protective custody prisoners. It's a bit like Arbeitmark Frey in, in Auschwitz. A sort of term that implied these people here could be labelled in some way. Now, um, all sorts of people like Jehovah's Witness got in there, other asocials, but if you happen to be Jewish here and homosexual, then you had a particular sign. Now, this um, arose from the German Penal Code. The German Penal Code is a bit like Britain, really, but it had in it something that was quite uh, dangerous. The loss of civil rights was there. Hitler didn't take long to use that rule, and he enforced registration of all homosexuals in 1934, along with other undesirables. And this law was quickly, in the subsequent year, widened to include indecency. And it was a little bit like the La Boucherre Amendment at the end of the 19th century in this country, which extended laws against male homosexual behavior from anal intercourse into any indecency, so-called. And then we had the consequence of this. Um, uh, sorry, these slides have been changed slightly, so I'm, I'm not familiar with what's coming next. But um, 
What's important here, I think, is not to compare this in any way. I'm not trying to compare this with the murder of million Jew, millions of Jews in Europe. What I think is important is to see that this was included, and there's a particular issue here, because for all intents and purposes, most gay people were invisible. And I think that's what really underlies the, the uh, limitation to the extent to which the Holocaust could deal with this. And it's something to do with discrimination all the time. It's an area where in racism or sexism, it's very difficult to hide. It's impossible to imagine if gay men and lesbians were not able to hide over the, over the centuries what would have been involved here in terms of the prejudice against them. What do we have currently? Well, 93 countries still have homosexual behavior as a criminal offense. And we know, as many of you have been hearing in Africa, that these laws are being strengthened. And they're mainly supported by religious groups. The evangelical Christian groups in the United States are touring across some of these American countries, and I'm sounding paranoid, but I'm not, um, and uh, talking about homosexuality as an evil, as a sin, and that's not helping. We still have seven countries with a death penalty for homosexual behavior, and many of you will be familiar that last, or will know of this, that last week in uh, Uganda, a gay activist was bludgeoned to death in his own garden. It followed because the newspapers were exposing famous or not even particularly well-known people who happened to be homosexual in Uganda. The police said that it was merely an intrusion. It was an intruder that came into the house, although it doesn't appear that anything was taken. This was an iconic image that circulated on the internet in uh, the noughties. And it was of two men, young men, below the age of 21, being hung publicly. I don't know if you've seen some of these images. They get hung from cranes in public squares. The uh, Iranian, because, they, because of homosexual behavior, the Iranian authorities said that that was nonsense, that they were pedophile rapists, uh, for which there was absolutely no evidence whatsoever. Uh, and there are two men now currently under the threat of stoning. Closer to home, the Lithuanian parliament has introduced fines for the promotion it reminds us of promotion of, uh, uh, I've forgotten the term that Mrs. Thatcher used, pretended families, or some term like that, in this country in the 80s. I'm not sure that this has actually been passed yet. Closer to home, we have the United Nations. Um, in the General Assembly's third committee, there was a move to remove reference to lesbian, gay, and transgender people from the, um, the condemnation of extrajudicial killing. And this was mainly motivated by African countries. This has later been changed. Ban Ki-moon gave a very important statement in December in which he uh, called for the abolition of criminal sanctions for homosexuality and to stop violence against uh, gay men and lesbians. So what's the thermometer, if you like, around the world? Well, you know, tepid in Western Europe, uh, possibly tepid. I had another slide to come in at this point um, which is not possible now because of the change, but uh, there was a survey in 2008 of crimes against uh, gay men and lesbians in this country. And one in three gay men or lesbians have uh, reported crimes against them, hate crimes of some sort in the preceding three years. But only seven out of 10 had reported to anyone, let alone the police. Now this is far, far lower reporting than we get in the general British crime survey. So maybe not quite as tepid as we thought. In Eastern Europe, it's warming up. 
It's extremely hard to have a gay pride march or anything of that nature in the Ukraine or Russia. It's warm in India and China. They're cooling down a wee bit in India with some appearance that laws may be changed. It's hot in Islamic countries and unbearably hot, it seems, in some African countries. But I want to touch on now very briefly uh, from my field a much more subtle form of heterosexism, and that is recasting homosexuality as illness. This was a favorite activity across the 20th century, and it was led by sexologists. Um, Magnus Hirschfeld, for example, Feld, that should be, had his books burned by the Nazis, which is always a good um, thing to have happened to anyone. But the sexologists were, had the best of intentions because they were trying to recast homosexuality as a natural, biologically driven uh, variant. But of course, when you have a biological variant, you also have treatments to remove that variant. And these were the treatments. They began long before there was any such thing as a diagnosis of homosexuality. There was a term. And in the 20s, we know in, in Germany, uh, there were published papers of testicular transplants between heterosexual and homosexual men. Now, without consent, of course, or even knowledge, actually, uh, in some cases, and certainly not with our modern transplant surgery technology. Much, much greater were behaviorism and psychoanalysis. Uh, and I want to talk a wee bit about this near the end. Now, I'm going to um, skip through this here to what was this diagnosis? How did uh, homosexuality become a diagnosis? Well, this is short for the D Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. And you can see, uh, if it wasn't so tragic, it would be funny. I mean, sociopathic disorder first, no remorse. Then it was non-psychotic mental disorder. Then it was removed in 1973 from the diagnostic manuals after pressure mainly from gay groups. But this peculiar term, ego-dystonic homosexuality, was added. Now, if you translate that, that means I don't want to be homosexual. Basically, uh, a homosexual who didn't want to be. Now, it never occurred to them that it might be something called ego-dystonic heterosexuality. Uh, but, but the heterosexual psychiatrists who were doing this, of course, hadn't occurred to them that might be the case. So you can see the assumptions that lie behind this. Then, later on, it, it got put back, and now we've got the international classification of diseases that still contains this, still current today. I'm going to skip through uh, what I had about psychoanalysis in respect of time, these are some of the behavioral treatments that we use, but generally psychoanalysis was a much more subtle form of treatment. I've, I've spoken to men who didn't actually know they were getting treatment to change their sexual orientation, but they sure knew if they were getting behavioral treatments, because these were shock aversion therapy, when uh, photographs of naked men, or it was mainly men, very few women went through these treatments, were coupled with electric shocks or vomiting to try and make, undo the faulty learning that was considered to be the basis of this. So what were the results of these treatments? Well, we examined this across um, the noughties. We published papers in the BMJ about the experience of patients who went through, these were oral history studies, who went through these treatments and the professionals who underwent, who, who undertook them. Now, most of the findings we found that these were pretty ordinary reasons why these people had gone into treatment. They were distressed about being gay. Most people they spoke to said, go and get some treatment. This is the trouble with a pervasive social diagnosis. Some were going to avoid 
imprisonment, like um, the example I gave right at the start, Alan Turing. And what was the result? Well, what we see is little change in sexuality at all. Some became asexual. They became unable to respond to anyone sexually. Uh, most were left distressed by this. But some had gone on to same-sex relationships. So the findings were pretty much what we had thought. But what did the professionals think they were doing? Well, most of the professionals we spoke to had been giving these behavioral treatments. They were all the rage in the 70s, even into the 80s. They were based on very little effectiveness. Very few people were doing any research to see whether they were effective. And the professionals seemed to be working from the best of intentions. They, they seemed to think that um, it was much easier if someone could just become heterosexual, you know, get on with their life, leave all this nastiness behind. And uh, therefore, they gave them the treatments. But they began to realize slowly that this wasn't working and that, you know, there was that homosexuality was compatible with full psychological health. Of course, research was coming through to show them this, uh, and these treatments died away. But did they? We wondered about this when we were talking to people, so we started to say, well, have they died away? Has anybody asked psychotherapists or psychiatrists what they're doing with people who come to them wanting to change their sexuality? And so we, we looked at a range of people, um, and our aim was to see, well, what are they doing now? And we went to quite a large sample of psychologists, uh, counsellors, psychoanalysts, and psychiatrists. And we said to them, you know, what would happen if a client came to you and wanted to change their sexual orientation? Well, politically correctly, 4% said they would attempt to change or redirect their client's sexual orientation. But a further 10% said they'd do so by sending them to someone who could. I don't know how they quite knew where to send them, because there's not a directory of uh, <laughs> uh, psychotherapists that do this. But then, as we went further into it, uh, we knew that we would learn more if we asked, well, have you actually done this? And one, on, one in six, these are current psychotherapists, said that they had. And we asked them to describe up to five patients that they'd treated. And what we found was that the motivation for these treatments was pretty much what we found from the oral history study. The same people, often people coming from fundamentalist religious backgrounds, all sorts of backgrounds, and they wanted to change their sexual orientation. What were the therapists doing was my question, and it seemed to be an eclectic form of psychotherapy for which uh, I couldn't quite see how you could change sexual orientation. And the worrying thing was we asked them, well, when were you seeing these patients? And there was no decline at all in recent years. It was the same level of intervention going on. And I want to mention, therefore, reparative therapies, because these are very close. Now, reparative therapies are the rage in the United States, and the word is really interesting, repair. And that comes from the psychoanalytical and behavioral literature that somehow, and these are the psychoanalytical slides I jumped over, somehow there's a heterosexual substrate from which deviations occurred. So now you need to re-educate and return to this idea of heterosexuality. Biber, a famous analyst in the 60s, said every homosexual is in reality a latent heterosexual. I've heard the quote the other way around sometimes. But, <laughs> so, this, so this is where it's coming from, and this is the American website, Exodus. Um, Exodus is growing. It's uh, certainly appearing in this country, and it has a global alliance now to, to treat people 
usually with some sort of mixture of psychotherapy and spiritual healing. Courage is a Roman Catholic group. I love these names. Evergreen International is a Mormon treatment center, and Homosexuals Anonymous <laughs> is, is the US uh, equivalent. The trouble is that these, these, uh, these organizations and therapists are extremely damaging, as far as we can see, and still provide no evidence of efficacy. So what are the consequences? And I want to romp through this. We undertook a systematic review of, well, what's happening to gay men and lesbians if they're suffering this sort of abuse, if they're suffering this sort of criminal activity, treatments, every which way you look, even religion seems to reject them. I'm saying a lot about men here because it seems to be more vicious and more directed at men than women, and men seem to be the perpetrators. But um, it certainly has effects. Oh, sorry. Lesbian, gay, and bisexual men are up to four times more likely to have suffered these problems. Deliberate self-harm, that means suicide attempts, depression, anxiety. It's closely associated with these experiences that I mentioned before of discrimination and bullying. But what we never knew was suicide. It does this affect the rates of suicide. Now, we've had a dialogue, ongoing dialogue, for a long time with the Department of Health because they will not put lesbian gay people as a possible risk group. Because they keep saying to us, well, we don't know. And we don't know. Well, we didn't know until recently. Because many people who kill themselves don't ever reveal their sexuality. So how would you know? Well, lately, we do know. This is a Danish study that came out last year. And in Denmark, there's been civil partnerships, registered, what do they call them? Registered domestic partnerships for a long time. So the comparison was made between uh, men and women in these partnerships to men and women who had ever been married or were single. And the completed suicide rate was eight times higher in men in civil partnerships than equivalent married men. And I think that figure is startling because the men in civil partnerships are the most stable of gay men. You know, they have the most family support, most recognition, and yet they're killing themselves at eight times the rate of others. The women was no difference at all. So people have speculated with this research, well, is it HIV? Are people killing themselves? Well, people are not killing themselves with HIV, not particularly up to 2001, and it would be very unlikely to explain it. So finally, the big question, if I've got time, uh, why are societies so homophobic? This is very important, this little cartoon. Um, why should some minorities be singled out for special rights? And the answer is because some minorities are singled out for special wrongs. And I think that's very important. The, the little piece here is not just a cartoon. That was a young man who was beaten, dragged live behind a car, and then thrown on a barbed wire fence because he was gay in the southern states of America not very long ago. So why are we homophobic, and why are men actually more homophobic than women? Well, first of all, homophobes unite. Yes, it's uh, disgust. There's a lot of research around the, the concept of disgust. Very quickly, people say, well, it's against God's law. The most pernicious one is corruption, that somehow gay men and lesbians are a danger to young people. Uh, this was very much the attitude taken by the Roman Catholic Church when the pedophile scandal first broke. It must have been, mustn't it, homosexual priests that had started this. 
And then we have the usual suspects again, the kind of sociological theories of in and out groups, fear of abdicating uh, masculinity for femininity. Lots of theories have been put about, but I want to talk about this one, because I think this is quite an interesting one that's been uh, talked about for quite a long time. Is it men's fear of their own same-sex responsiveness? Now, we, you know, people speculated for years, but then some research came out. But first of all, I want to ask you what that is. You know, it looks horrific. I was working in a Czech clinic, and I looked up on the wall, and here was this thing above me. And I thought to myself, is this what I think it is? And it was. I can't pronounce that word, but it's a penal plasmographer. Mog can't do it. So, but it measures penile erection. It measures the pressure in the penis. That's a very old-fashioned one. But many of these uh, experiments have related to this, so they test the man's sexual responsiveness when he can't uh, hide it. Okay, well, people voluntarily undergo these tests. <laughs> and uh, there was a study published in 1999 now, which has been really overlooked for some years, but there were, they took some students and they measured their attitudes to homosexuality. They measured how homophobic they were on this index of homophobia scale. And then uh, they took only exclusively heterosexual men who said their sexual arousal and experience was uh, all about uh, the opposite sex. And then they got them to view heterosexual, homosexual, and lesbian sexual videotapes. And they measured their penile blood flow. And they also got them to give subjective ratings of how aroused they were. Well, hey presto, what did we find? Well, both groups showed equal arousal to the heterosexual and lesbian videos. Lesbian videos are very arousing to some gay men. But only the homophobic men showed a significant increase in penile circumference to the homosexual male video. But they rated it very low. So what do we make of this? Well, I, I really like this T-shirt. <laughs> I, I don't know if you know what's common, you know, oh, it's so gay in schools. It's very current about anything, let alone to do with sexuality. So I think this is quite enough. This evidence. I think still. Why has it evolved in the way it has? Why is it still present when you know you could say um, gay men and lesbians may have less children, may be less reproductive than other uh, especially in modern times, although not necessarily historically. So what about this? Well, there are some theories around, and please forgive the kitsch pictures that I have here, but there is genetic theories that there is a complex tray that's to do with sexuality, that if present in full dose leads to homosexuality, otherwise it leads to metro male, the, the sort of more nurturing heterosexual male has part of this tray, and if it's completely absent, we have Rambo, who's, <laughs> who's hyper-masculine and uh, nurtures his children very poorly. Now, 
This may seem a loopy theory when you see it, but of course it's perfectly testable. So we tested it because it would predict that the family sizes of gay men might be larger, therefore, than straight men. You know, if this is a nurturing trait, then you ought to be able to go and work out what the family sizes of various men are. So we did that. And we... Um, now, this has been published, we published this, and this has been replicated by one or two other groups that are now going into this in more depth because it's fascinating. We took, not a very big sample, really, if you think about it, uh, gay men, heterosexual men, we only white men, we tried to control some of the cultural variants, and we simply counted. We got them to, for us to count all of their uncles, aunts, first cousins, siblings, nephews, and nieces, not their own children. And we found that the mean family size for each category of relatives was significantly higher in the gay men. And that's true, even these are the maternal, and when you added up all the maternal and paternal, the odds ratio looks small, but of course it will be very small because the effect on family size must be small, but significant. And what's interesting is that after we adjusted for other predictors of family size, religion, obviously other things that might explain it, we found that. So my thought is, well, I think, um, yeah, my thought is, how interesting. I mean, there's lots of other ideas about, of course, why homosexuality may uh, continue to exist, but it would be a big mistake, wouldn't it, if uh, this was something that was very positive for the population as a whole and we continue to discriminate against it. So I'm going to stop there. Um, what do I, I make of it all? And I have, you know, there's so many areas I haven't been able to cover. Um, but to my mind, homophobia is alive and literally kicking in this country. Um, I think it demonstrates the kind of society we're in, the sort of the cliche of how we treat minorities. I think visibility is very, very important. I alluded to invisibility of most gay men and lesbians um, that perhaps protected them from uh, discrimination. But visibility tends to throw back the frontiers of that and therefore openness. I think openness now in families is making a huge difference. But also legislation about which I haven't had a chance to speak. So thanks very much. Michael, for a brilliant talk. I think we've got time for one or two questions, if there are any in the audience. Uh, strange. Um, relating to the family size and scientific research slides you were talking about, uh, would you consider that there is a possibility that this uh, introduction of a nurturing aspect, so to speak, um, is Earth's way to control her own population. Because you mentioned that um, homo uh, homosexual men and women usually have a, a, a larger family size. Uh, so could you argue that this, um, or has there been studies into the idea that um, the larger the size, the, the more likely it is that there is this introduction of this homo, uh, homosexual trait. Well, it could be like another way round of looking at it, but I would emphasise it was only in men, not in women. And most of, the, most of the evidence we look at in terms of the origins of homosexuality, for example, all the genetic research, um, birth order research, all these things, all really relates to men. We seem to know more about 
the origins of same-sex desire in men than women. I would say, though, that I, another caveat I wanted to say was, I think the terms are ridiculous that we use here. You know, gay, lesbian, bisexual, you know, really physiologically in, in, in nature it's a nonsense. You know, that, that we've categorized people into boxes. And I think we do that for political reasons and for survival. But actually, as far as we can see, sexuality is a dimensional, like everything, like height, uh, is a dimensional characteristic in, in society. And we know that if we put heterosexual men in same-sex institutions or heterosexual women, that, that, that many will, will have same-sex relationships and come out and just go back to their opposite-sex partners. So it's very, very complex, this. And much of the research has taken things called gay men or lesbians and, and researched them when really it may not be the right way, even our research is exactly the same, it may not be the right thing to do. So it's immensely complex. Um, and I think that people, bisexual people particularly, through the ages have been able to hide and push themselves in a heterosexual direction more. And if you look at the people who undergo reparative therapies, it's often the case that they've had some bisexual responsiveness and they're trying to shut out the sort of same-sex desire that they have. There was a question over here, it's right at the back. Is there not the possibility that evolution would make us dislike homosexuals because it reduces reproduction? Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, that's been the overriding thing. Not so much evolution, you don't really need to invoke evolution. It's just, you know, they're not pulling their weight. They're not having children, for heaven's sake, you know. And so then they're not acceptable. But you could say there's a lot of theories that are the opposite of that, that they do pull their weight enormously because single aunts and, aunts and aunties are extremely helpful in a small tribe to uh, strengthen the, the group genome, if you like. So there are many, many theories about, uh, that's what I was apologizing for my, uh, this isn't my theory, apologizing for that theory because it's only one among many, many. But, but there must be some, you know, things don't stay around constantly in this way without some advantage. That's what's, that's what's why we're curious about it, really. By the way, I, I should say the origins of homosexuality in terms of psychoanalytic terms have been completely exploded. There is no, no evidence that person's upbringing or parenting have anything to do with their sexuality. Um, is there any anatomical or genetic basis linking gays? Uh, linking them? How do you mean? Yeah, what I'm saying, if there is any genetic or anatomical basis leading to gayism, so to say. Uh, sure. There's, yeah. no, there's nothing uh, anatomical or physiological that we know. There are some claims about neurological differences between, uh, again, it's this idea of categories between gay and heterosexual men. Uh, certainly there's genetic evidence for, for gay men, although it's constantly moving and not very clear. Uh, there's also uh, evidence about, the, about your, your birth order in the family. Um, men who have uh, more older brothers tend to be more likely to be gay than, you know, so gay men tend to have more older brothers than straight, although um, our research didn't show that. It showed that they had more older siblings in general, not just brothers. I don't know. The, the, these things are, are interesting to a point, but my worry about a lot of this research is where it leads. I mean, you can see where it led in the early 20th century, so you have to be very, very careful. I'd love to know what causes people to be heterosexual. You know, we haven't a clue. 
So, you know, what, what would be a good idea is to understand the spectrum of sexuality, not this group. Well, everything's evolution. Well, probably most things are. But what I'm saying is, I'm trying to get at a broader spectrum than just what's this variant about down here. So, any good example of a society where uh, homophobia is minimal? Like ancient Greeks or stuff like that. Sorry, I missed the question. Do you have any good example of uh, a society where homophobia is minimal? Yeah, that's what I tried to hint at, and I've probably gone too fast through some of the early slides. The, the only societies where, uh, as far as we know, there are some tribal societies, modern tribal societies, where that might be the case, but uh, in those, usually, homosexual men are seen as an intersex. They're seen as more towards a feminine end. But in ancient Rome, particularly ancient Greece, there were, as many historians here will know, there was a situation where older men had relationships with younger men, but they weren't, they were within certain prescribed limits to do with teaching and admonition and all this sort of thing. They weren't, they weren't in the modern sense of a gay relationship. And they were barely tolerated. It depended how long they went on and whether the older man still usually was married and had children. It wasn't tolerated as a, as a distinct relationship. And that, so there's very few societies, I would say none, where they were completely neutral, where there was no difference if you were homosexual or heterosexual. I've got two final questions here at the front. Um, I, I'm speaking as a, a gay doctor and a, a ch the chair of GLAAD. Uh, we're worried about um, the monitoring uh, aspects uh, whilst accepting the limitations of a label like gay or lesbian. Uh, we think that healthcare will not be able to pr progress. Um, we're worried about the psychiatry in particular not wanting to, to monitor patient information so they can look at actual demographics and, and, and morbidity. Um, and we're also anxious about our own uh, trade union not wanting to monitor our, um, its membership in terms of sexual orientation. Have you any thoughts on monitoring? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm amazed any gay man or lesbian goes near a psychiatrist, quite frankly, or becomes one. But um, <laughs> because, uh, you know, the history is so awful. And we've now gone so far backwards over the other way that, that, that as a society we're scared to even collect that information. So there's a lot of arguments that's not going to be collected in the next census. Uh, we there, there, are, there are surveys in England called National Psychiatric Morbidity Surveys. And in the last one that happened in 2007, we managed to uh, persuade the Department of Health to include a question on sexual orientation. That was the first time they've been done. And we did some research to find out the best way to ask the question. And what was really interesting, so that's the first random sample we have of psychiatric health in gay and lesbians. We're about to publish this soon, and the rates are even higher than we had thought in the previous studies. So there's a real worry, and I agree with you, that, that you know, we should see this as a normal demographic variant. The problem is it's so dangerous for people. It isn't a normal variant for them. They feel excluded from work, from all sorts of situations. So we're not there yet. So I don't know where, where the balance should lie. It's very hard. A curi you know, from curiosity, I'd love it to be in the census, or all that sort of thing, but I understand why people are frightened. You know, if you've got a job in the city, uh, you know, I'm told, you know, that uh, in banking, also it's a very macho society, gay out. So, who knows? So. Oh, one final question, I think, just, just there. 
Um, I wonder why Uganda, why the Ugandan police uh, said that that man was beaten to death as the result of a burglary. Why, if it's, if homosexuality is sanctioned against in their legislature, why don't they admit to using this legislature? Why do they deny their own homophobia? Yeah, it's curious, isn't it? On the one hand, they're very homophobic, but as, certain, as soon as anything happens, oh, no, no, it wasn't anything to do with homophobia. Well, I don't know, it's a dub double standard. I mean, a country in the headlines at the moment that we're all terribly sympathetic with is also very homophobic. Egypt, in particular, um, has had police, of course, the police in Egypt are another thing altogether, but the police in Egypt have had a, uh, had a campaign against gay men for a very long time. It hardly gets into the newspaper, but that gay men in Egypt can hardly assemble for a function without intrusion by the police. So it's, the, some of these societies are very homophobic, but as soon as you say they are, then, oh, no, 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 we're not homophobic. The role, I think, sorry if I can just one quick word, the role of the church in this is the most disappointing role that you can almost get. The current Archbishop of Canterbury is almost silent over what's going on across Africa, and they're, they're often to do with the Anglican Communion, these uh, bishops that are advocating these laws. Uh, I think it's shameful what's going on. For, for coming today and thank you to Michael for a tremendous talk and also to our sign language interpreters who've been doing a fantastic job. Thank you. To find out more about UCL, please visit us at itunes.ucl.ac.uk.